Thank you. Thank you for the genuine privilege of being here as well. Um, let, me, let me pray for us as we look at Joshua 1 together. Pray that God would help us. Pray that he would speak clearly to us. Father, we're not simply after a better grasp of Joshua chapter 1 in one sense. We don't simply want to understand what these verses mean better, but we want to hear your voice to us. And so as we open them up, we pray that you would soften our hearts and that you would speak. Speak to us as individuals, indeed to us as a church corporate. And as you speak, by your spirit, give us the the ability, the strength, the capacity to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It feels really appropriate, actually, to be preaching Joshua chapter 1 this morning, in part because it's a new term, and Joshua 1 is a book of, or a chapter of new beginnings. But of course, Joshua chapter 1 as well is, a, is about new leadership. And so... On the Sunday following the passing of our Queen, actually there are similar kind of flows and ideas going on, similar questions that we might be asking as we come to these verses together. The big question at the beginning of Joshua that we're meant to be asking is, so what now then? So what now? I mean, if you look down, the text is pretty blunt Um, Johnny mentioned it already, after the death of Moses, verse 1, the servant of the Lord, or verse 2, in case we missed it, Moses, my servant, is dead. And so the what now question is because, well, so far Moses has been pretty much a constant, a bit like the Queen actually. Moses hasn't been an extra in the background, he has not been a bit player in the story of the Bible. In fact, through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, he has been, in human terms, the key character. He has been the main guy. And so to begin Joshua chapter 1 with Moses out of the picture, it's a surprising start. We are meant to be asking, well, what now then? So in Bible terms, if you just back up a bit and you know your Bibles, you will know it was Moses who spoke face to face to the Lord. It was Moses who rescued God's people out of Egypt, at least in human terms. It was Moses who led the people of God through the Red Sea. It was Moses who spoke the words of God to his people. It was Moses who again and again and again and again mediates with God when his people rebel and grumble and moan and wander off. And in human terms, so much of at least Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, hangs off Moses. Now we are saying, so what? What now? What is the plan? Um, his death wasn't a surprise. Bit of background. If we'd been reading Numbers, we would know that he wouldn't make it to the promised land. He had mistrusted the word of the Lord. He did his own thing. He was meant to, to, to speak to the rock and he strikes the rock. And so the Lord says, you're not coming in. And so what now? Well, again, before I answer that question, it's interesting. If you read through the Bible, more books than you would expect begin with the death of a national leader. Exodus, 
It starts with the, the death of Joseph. Judges starts with the death of Joshua. 2 Samuel starts with the death of Saul. 2 Kings, the death of King Ahab. Why? Why are so many Bible books beginning with the death of a leader? Because we are saying, what now? And the answer from God is, business as usual. It's the same as before. It's a new chapter, but it's the same book. Leadership is expendable, but we have the same God. Leadership is expendable, but we have the same God. In one sense, all pastors are interim pastors. It is not about us, but we've got a God who is faithful. A God who makes promises, a God who has a plan, a God who has the same faithfulness. And regardless of who is leading, we can trust him. No new purposes but the same faithful plan. Have a look down at verse 1 with me. Joshua 1 and verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. See, the language in verse 2 there of land, the language in verse 3 of promise, they they are words and ideas from the Bible that are loaded with different kind of concepts. There's a story behind them. They come with a, a context and a history. They're part of the narrative. That is, this story has already charging along different themes and threads that we kind of spot on the way through. And when you read land and when you read promise, you go, ah, yes. Yes, that makes sense. I remember that. This is the continuation of a story that's already building up steam. And the story so far, forgive me for those of you for whom this is new, I will go too quick. For those of you, this is really old school. I will be way too um, uh, boring. You will know this already. But the story so far is that God is a God who makes promises. He made promises to a man called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And out of complete obscurity, because of his grace, he chooses a person and so a people. And he will take them to a land of plenty and a land of peace. He makes promises to Abraham. And from this land that they will arrive in, from there they can be a place of of blessing to the world. But if you know how Genesis moves across to Exodus, you will know that it doesn't quite go according to plan. Because where do God's people find themselves? That's not rhetorical. I'm going to make sure you're awake. Where do God's people find themselves at the start of Exodus? In In slavery, yes. Where is the place? Egypt. Thank you very much. I will just check you are awake. I know it's kind of Sunday afternoon. You've had good food. You've had good coffee and I'm slightly buzzing, so I apologise for that. But hopefully we'll stay awake. So God's people, they are in slavery in Egypt. And it looks like God's promises are thwarted. Hang on, you promised your people a place and they're in the wrong place. And indeed they are being over, overborn, if that's the word, by Pharaoh. And yet God, God's pr- promises can't be foiled. So he rescues his people from Egypt through Moses. And they go from Egypt through the promised land 
Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, they find themselves at the edge of the promised land, Numbers chapter 13. Here is the land that God promised them. They are finally there, and under the radar, they send in 12 spies to the land. 12 spies, one spy from each family, going to scout, scout their way in, check out the opposition. How's this going to go? And they go in, and it is so beautiful and so fertile. And the grapes that they bring back look like they've been genetically modified. They are enormous. They taste amazing. And yet the problem is, so are the people. It's as if the people have been genetically modified as well. They are huge. And the cities are well fortified and well defended. And they look at the problems rather than the God who makes him promises. They look at the problems rather than the promises. And so at least 10 of the 12 come back and say, yeah, we can't do that. No chance. And two men, Caleb and Joshua, trust the Lord that he will give them the land that he has promised them. And they urge the others, say, you've got to trust him. And do they trust him? No. And to be honest, what happens next is an absolute mess. Numbers 13 kind of onwards is a bit of a mess. This is, this is not Instagram. This is, I believe it's be real. So my, my kids tell me, nothing is photoshopped, nothing is airbrushed, nothing looks particularly good. It is an absolute mess. And for the generation who chose not to trust God, not to take him at his word, come 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years of wilderness wanderings, Discipline from the Lord. And they arrive now at the edge of the land, Joshua 1. They've just had some serious sermons in Deuteronomy. A re-giving of the law on the edge of the land. And now we hit Joshua chapter 1. And they are about to enter the land that God has promised them. They are about to enjoy the rest they've been waiting for. And it's right to say that transitions between leadership can always be messy. There's always a time of uncertainty and stress. Always a time of, but hang on, how's this going to pan out? But Joshua is a book that will tell us that God's plans are not thwarted by the death of a leader. God is the one who makes his promises, and so he is the one who will deliver on his promises to his people. He is faithful. And this week, as I prepared for you guys, prepared for this, That has been my prayer, that you would know his faithfulness. And that more than that, you would trust his faithfulness. I don't particularly know you. Few familiar faces. Few from Magdalen Road. Few from down the years. But I I am sure that each of you will at times wrestle with the possibility of not trusting God's faithfulness. There'll be things in your life. There'll be questions that you have. And you're thinking, can I really trust him? Is he really trustworthy? So that's been my prayer, that you would know his faithfulness and you would cling on to it. Because as the book unfolds, and as Johnny was asking me before, it is more than just the idea that God is faithful. It's more than that. It's will I trust him? When the rubber hits the road, will I trust him? And you'll see it as the weeks go by. Um, Sadly, not with me, but... You will see God's faithfulness towards us and you will see the people's response to his faithfulness. Again and again and again. God is faithful to you. How are you going to respond? 
That's the question. So let's jump into chapter one. That was a long overview, wasn't it? Sorry. Just a broad overview before we jump in. Firstly, you have got the Lord speaking to Joshua. That's the kind of structure of the chapter. And then secondly, you have got Joshua speaking to the people. So the Lord speaks to Joshua in the first half, kind of one to nine. He is commissioned by God, if you like. And then 10 to um, 18 is Joshua speaking to the people. So the Lord speaks to him and then he speaks to them. Have a look down again with me and let's read from verse 3 to 6. And as I read those verses, I want you to kind of soak in some of the aspects of the promise. Try and kind of get to grips with what's going on. So verse 3. I will give you, the Lord says, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one can stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Do you see, he's doing control C, control V. My promise to Moses, I make to you, Joshua. I copy and I paste. He repeats the promise that he made to Moses. And in that promise, firstly, he includes the land. It's the entirety of the land. If you have a look down, it is from the Euphrates in the east, uh, east this side, I'm trying to do it backwards, the east, to the Mediterranean in the west. That's all of the land of Canaan. It is huge, it is massive. And the description matches what God first promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. So he is repeating the promise, he's not gone back on his promise. In today's terms, we would be talking about modern Israel, but also Jordan, Saudi Arabia, half of Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and all of Kuwait. And if you know your Bibles, you might be surprised by that. Because the land was never actually that big. As you see how it works out, they never actually get that much land. They never take it, they never live in it, they never enjoy the whole area that God has promised to them. I think, well, hang on, you've just told me that God is faithful, but he's, he's not given them what's going on there. It seems to me, just as the previous generation were unwilling to trust as they entered the land, this generation don't seem to trust as they take the land. They don't take all that the Lord has for them. Calvin, in his commentary on Joshua, says it came as part from unbelief. God had made promises, but they didn't actually trust the promises that he had made for them. They didn't enjoy all that he gave them. And I've chewed on that this last week because, isn't it right, our God is gracious and kind and good and bountiful and generous and so much is ours in Christ and But as Paul will put in Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has so many good things for us. And there will be a now and a not yet element. We don't get everything now. But it's almost as if, I wonder sometimes we choose not to experience or to enjoy or to, to trust God for all that he has for us. Maybe we don't want to take it too seriously or step out too far or... We prefer a sense of safety. We trust self even. It's the kind of daily battle to believe the Lord that what he promises is mine to enjoy now. 
Maybe we don't even take all that he has for us. Maybe that's why you look at your Christian life or I look at my Christian life and it's not quite what I would like it to be. And what I see God promising me and what I see experiencing in my own life doesn't quite... You know, maybe that's me. Maybe that's us. So he promises them this enormous land and they don't take it all. There's an unbelief there. They don't enjoy all the gifts that he gives. So there's land. Secondly, in verse 5, look, there's, there's victory. There is no opponent that will be able to thwart the people of God. No one can stand in opposition to God. What a comfort for Joshua. This enormous land out in front of him, bigger than he can imagine, full of enormous people with enormous cities and armies and challenges and weapons and home advantage and and power. and, And yet because he's got God on his side, if he trusts him, he will always win. Victory has been promised. And as the book unfolds in the weeks to come, you will see something of that. You will see something of of God using this weak individual, this king, who doesn't quite get it right all the time. And so God will be with him and use him and be at work. So there's land, there's victory, there's presence as well in verse 5. I love this one. As I was with Moses... So I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's land and it's victory and it's presence. And you know what? This is the best thing. This is what undergirds everything else. This is the foundation of the chapter in one sense. This is what made Israel unique. They're traveling through the wilderness. They're they're living in the land. And Joshua has that promise too. God will be with them. To lose his presence is to lose his power. I take it it's the same for us. God has committed himself by his spirit to live within his people, within his church. He gives us himself. And too often we get caught up in, what is it? It's it's the blessings. It's the stuff that he gives us. And we forget that we get him. We, we want the things, we want the goodies, and we forget that actually what he fundamentally promises is himself. I mean, you listen to your prayers this week, and you'll see so often we're praying for things from him. Yes, I am. Rather than a recognition that I have him. And in the mess and in the mayhem and the chaos and just daily life, and goodness me, how am I going to get through September, October and November? And Lord, can you give me this, this and this and that? that then... Actually, what matters is I've got him. He is with me by his spirit. And the gifts that he gives us are all good things to enjoy. He's our father in heaven who loves to give us good gifts. But actually, more importantly, we get the father in heaven by his spirit. What we need most is him. Maybe you do look ahead to this next term. And you're kind of... Shrug emoji. You're, how am I going to do this? Like, I've got these meetings coming up. I've got this stress coming up. I've, I've got things that I'm just worried about, anxious about. And you're wondering how to pray. Well, pray that the Lord would help you. Pray that he might remove some of these barriers, that he might provide what you need. But more than that, pray that you would know, with, you would know him with you in the mess. And that he would be enough. 
Your, your starter for 10 to prayer, our starter for 10 in our praying, must always be, Lord, we've got you. Thank you that you are with us in this. So his, pre- his presence, he promises his presence. He says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And imagine you are Joshua at this point, if you can. And you feel your heart rate just kind of drop slightly because you remember it's not about you, but he promises to be with you. And yet what that means, though, is is not that Joshua can sort of put his feet up on the sofa and kick back and just let it happen. Lord, off you go. You do your thing. I'm just going to not get in your way. No, no. Famously, we get, the, uh, we get the call for him to be strong and very courageous. Verse 7. Or verse 6 is, is there in verse 6. Is there in verse 7. Is there in verse 9. It's like, come on. Joshua, are you, you getting this? Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. The Lord is repeating it. I mean, we need that, don't we? And then verse 18 at the end of the chapter as well. He gets it from the people. Joshua, the Lord has promised you three times. Or commanded you three times to be strong and courageous. Now the people are like, I don't forget what the Lord said. And so for Joshua to do this, he's got to be brave and bold and courageous. Do you feel brave and bold and courageous generally in life? I mean, put yourself in his shoes and at times, do you know? Maybe on a Sunday at church and I leave church, it's like, yeah, and then Monday, oh dear, no, it's all gone. Or or you're lying in bed at night and it's mind racing, it's can't sleep, it's things piling up. I'm not feeling brave and bold and courageous and you're panicking and there are fears swirling around. How is Joshua going to lead the people of God at a time like that? What's the answer? As always in this Bible, the, um, the, uh, the imperatives flow from the indicatives. That is, God doesn't just tell you what to do. He tells you why to do it. Okay, so Joshua would do this, and we say, why? I'll tell you why. So what you do flows from what you know, if you like. And what truth is he to hold on to? Well, again, verse 7, be strong and very courageous, in case you've forgotten. Uh, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or the left. You may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then you will be prosperous and successful. Joshua, how are you going to be strong and courageous and bold? Read your Bible. That's what he says, isn't it? By reading the law. As you read, as you read the law, as you read the scriptures, so you see who your God is, and you see what he is like, and you see how to obey him. You see that he is trustworthy and good and beautiful and faithful. And that is what's going to make him strong and courageous. He's not going to search for the hero inside himself. That doesn't work. He can't stir it up from within. Give himself a kind of pep talk. Now that's not going to help. He looks to the Lord. Read the Bible. I was just saying to um, Paul in here, he's not. I was just saying before, uh, before this, as we were 
catching up outside. Um, I don't know about you, but I find the summer quite hard, spiritually. I know lots of you will be on kind of camps and stuff, and I get that. But when you haven't got the same rhythms in place, and you've not got the sort of same routines, and maybe church is kind of stripped back a bit because everyone's having a bit of a break or on holiday, and you go and you're on holiday somewhere and lying on the beach, and you get to the end of the week, and he's like, I've not, not really read my Bible or prayed this week very much. And so I wonder if at the start of a new term, it's a good opportunity to get back into good rhythms, healthy rhythms of reading the Bible and chewing over it and chatting through it with friends and meditating on it and memorising it even and wrestling with the scriptures. And And so like Joshua, as we get to grips again with what God says to us, then maybe we might be a bit more bold and courageous because we remember who God is and what he is like because the indicatives then go into the imperatives. And the truths about God shape our, our reality, shape our lives. And so maybe we're then a bit more willing to oh, stick our necks out for him. Speak about him to those around us. Question for you as we come to this kind of second half. Or at least we just wrestle with this idea of bold and courageous. Who are we meant to be? In Joshua chapter 1. As you read the text of Joshua 1, who are you? Who am I in the story, if you like? Why do I ask that question here? Because you go onto Amazon and you look up strong and courageous poster. I can tell you from experience there are many, many motivational posters quoting Joshua 1 verse 9 for you. And there are pictures of lions. There are pictures of people climbing up cliffs with kind of massive muscles and kind of sweat dripping off them, being presumably strong and courageous. There are pictures of people surfing. There are pictures of horses. There's even a picture of a stag, posters of stags, where it says, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? And I'm not joking. Is that a promise for you in 1 verse 9? Is that a promise for me? Is God telling us, be strong and courageous and I will give you victory wherever you go? I think my answer is no and yes. What do I mean? No, well, of course, primarily, this is a command. This is a promise to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 during a time of transition as he leads his people into the land of promise. It is a specific and unique time in salvation history. It is for a context. First and foremost, this is a promise for Joshua. He is the leader of the people of God, taking God's people into the, the land. Which means for us, it's, uh, it's a book that is meant to provoke and strengthen our confidence in God and his faithfulness. It's a book that's meant to provoke us claiming the promises he's given us, to boost our confidence that finally he will get us to the new heavens and the new earth. We don't have a land now in the same way. We have, if you like, a whole new creation. But we are not Joshua. Jesus is foundationally Joshua. He is the leader of God's people tasked with getting them to a place of rest. 
and leading them to a place of promise. Jesus is our Joshua. God has given you and me a mighty leader, and it is not Joshua. He has given us a mighty leader who is confident of victory, and his name is Jesus. More on that in a bit. Does that mean on Monday morning you should be tearing up your posters of Joshua 1 verse 9 and your stags and your climbers and your horses are all going to go in the recycling? Is it recycling week in Bicester this week? I don't know. I don't think so because we're to be a people who trust the Lord, who knows that he is with us and knows that he is finally victorious. So he might not give you victory in that exam or that sports match or that thing that you're really worried about. But ultimately, we can trust in his victory and getting us to the new heavens and the new earth. Because we're a people in Christ. And he is the one who is truly trusted, even to the point of death. And so these promises are for us as we follow Christ. As you trust him for this term ahead. And in this chapter, I think we're the people in the background. Actually, we are the crowds whom Joshua speaks to in the second half. And that's where it goes next, 10 to 18. So do you remember 1 to 9, God speaks to Joshua. 10 to 18, Joshua speaks to the people. 1 to 9, the faithful Lord commissions Joshua. Now 10 to 18, Joshua commissions the people. Which in itself is good news. It means that Joshua is trusting the Lord. He is taking him at his word. And again, our question is going to be, edge of seats, tense, how are they going to respond to him? For Joshua is not Moses. We've seen the Lord has entrusted the mantle of leadership to Joshua. Now, will the people trust Joshua? I mean, will, maybe will we trust King Charles? Maybe there's a bit of a parallel there. Probably not. Will they listen to him? Will they follow him? Will they obey him? Will the people of God trust the leader of God's people? Have a look at, down at 10 to 18. He's got two conversations and then the people respond to what he says. So in 10 to 11, let me read. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan And go and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving of your own. That is, God has given you this land. We're going in. Get your stuff ready. It's time to go. And 12 to 14, look. This would kind of be the small print. Some of us are scratching our heads there. If you know numbers well, you will know that the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh actually have land outside of the Jordan, outside of the Promised Land. It was prime livestock land. They were farmers. They said, hey, can we stay here and have this land, please? And we promise when you take the land, we will come and fight with you. We'll fight for you. So we're not trying to get out of the war. We just like the land here. And indeed, Joshua 22, they will do that. That's kind of small print. He commissions them and told them what the Lord wants them to do. Now, how are they going to respond? Verse 16, pick it up with me. Then they answered Joshua... Whatever you have commanded us to do, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and doesn't obey it, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Nudge, nudge. 
there is no opposition to the leadership. They will obey him as they obeyed Moses. If the Lord be with him, and if he will trust the Lord, 17 and 18. Leadership transition, tick. Ready for the book to unfold, tick. God is faithful, tick. Are we ready to go? Tick. And it's right, I think, is at this point we just say, we look at the people, they listen to what God says through their leader, and there's an implicit question for us that says, huh, they actively obeyed the Lord? How about you? How about me? Do we listen? Do we obey? Do we trust? Are we zealous? in the way that they were. There is meant to be, I think, an implicit spotlight on us. It's a bit of a minor key in the chapter, but it's definitely there. Maybe it's the opportunity on your way home to think, actually, where is the Lord speaking to me at the moment? Where am I trying to push his word away and not really listen? Or am I trusting him? Am I obeying him? He is speaking faithfully. What's my response? But I don't want that to be the final thing ringing in our ears as we finish. I'm not sure that is the main thrust of the chapter. There is an implicit implicit question. Are we obeying him? But I think the main thrust is the Lord's faithfulness to his people. The words behind me on the screen. He is the one giving the land to them. He is the one who made promises. He is the one who provides what we need. He is the one who is with us. He is the one who will never leave nor forsake his people. He is the God who is with you and with me. And so as we finish, I want you to think, think again about this strong and courageous. It comes up four times, doesn't it? Four times in the chapter. And isn't it more reassuring that it is not primarily about you or about me? I mean, put your hands up if you think you would be capable of leading the people of God from verse 5 to 9 as, you're, as God calls Joshua to. Anyone? Would you back yourself? I wouldn't back me. We need someone who, who leads us and who is not daunted, but who is always faithful. We need someone who has been perfectly moulded and shaped and fashioned by the law of God, by the Bible, by the scriptures. We need someone who is, who is able to fight the battles for us. Someone who is assured of victory, therefore. We need someone who, despite pain and suffering and hardship, is always faithful and knows God always to be faithful. Even in the hardest times, even in the darkest moments, And we need someone, finally, who does away with the enemies of God forever. Someone we can trust to get us into the promised land. And so enjoy rest forever. And maybe you do look ahead to this next term. Or to the year ahead. Or whatever that thing is that keeps you awake at night. And you're not quite sure whether you can trust the Lord whether you're willing to to follow him? Or indeed, are you sure of getting to the new heavens and the new earth? I'm not sure I can keep going. I'm not sure I can keep plodding. I'm not sure this is working. 
And so for us, we have another Joshua. Another person whose name is the Lord saves. We have another Joshua known by his Greek name. Jesus. He is our Joshua. Our Father doesn't give you the new heavens and the new earth because of your own strength, your own abilities, your own prowess, your own ticking the boxes and performing day after day and week after week and month after month because you will know you don't and I will know that I don't. It's not because we are strong and courageous. It's because he was, he is. We don't battle into the new heavens and the new earth, the promised land. We don't earn it or grasp it ourselves. It has been won for us. Through the obedience of Jesus, through his death on the cross. As we take bread and wine in a moment, what a great opportunity to look again to him and thank him for his victory for us. That he was strong and courageous. That he was willing even to go to the cross for you and for me. Your, your place in the promised land, the new heavens, the new earth, doesn't depend on you, for goodness sake. It's Jesus. He's done it. He's won it. He's gone before. And our job, our job is to cling to Jesus, who's already made his way in. He is the mighty Joshua. He is, he is the Lord who saves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the mighty Joshua. Thank you that you have secured for your people, through your death and your resurrection, through your victory, you have secured for your people the inheritance that we don't deserve. Lord, we're sorry for the way in which we, in our own strength, seek to be strong and courageous, seek to earn it in some way, seek to... Seek to grasp it. When you have done it all before, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. We thank you that you are faithful. And we pray that we might be those who trust your promises, who are indeed trusting your faithfulness. And yet when we get it wrong, and we will, We pray that we might be those who are quick to repent, who are quick to accept your grace again. Thank you, Jesus, that you are are the true Joshua. Help us to know your presence with us this term. Whatever the future holds, whatever that thing is that we're dreading, help us to cling to you. In your name we pray. Amen.